1: a bunch of COVID and vaccine headlines. Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine overwhelmingly effective against the virus in a study that followed uh, more than a million people in Israel, Tim, results that public health experts say show that immunizations could end the pandemic. That's a big one.
0: That's a big one. Ruth Faden is joining us now, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, professor of biomedical ethics at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Publ- Public Health. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Ruth, thanks for joining us on this. What did you make of this news that we, we got from Israel? I mean, this is pretty fantastic right
2: it's extremely happy making so this is (laughs) these are the findings
1: i like happy making
2: (laughs) it is very happy making i mean that that was the way i would i I, when i read when i saw this stuff yesterday i was just like yay what this establishes is that the vaccine works truly in the real world so there is this difference that uh, epidemiologists and vaccinologists make between efficacy which is what you see in a study and effectiveness which is what happens in the real world and now we know this vaccine performs beautifully in- and and is that what you
1: in a normal in a normal world <laughs> we would have had time to figure this out or uh, like tell us a little bit about so that people who are listening are like well wait a minute let me really understand sure. what the, di- sure, the sure, difference sure.
2: is so so, th- so this is always a difference between uh, what you see what, you, what scientists learn in a clinical trial, which is very controlled, right, and kind of ideal best case scenario, and then in the real world stuff happens. So it's not peculiar to vaccines or even vaccines rapidly developed. It could be true of new drugs that are being developed. You then start to introduce more room for human error, right? Mm-hmm. And you, in a clinical trial, everything is done very carefully according to a protocol. When you move to a national rollout, even a very well-organized rollout, uh, which is the case in Israel, you still have human beings who are—many more human beings are involved. Obviously, human beings are involved in a clinical trial. But in a rollout, you've got large numbers of human beings who are involved needing to do all kinds of things to make everything go right, right? Uh, And and what happened in Israel, which is what is so stunning, is that it really— Despite the fact that it's now in real world actual public health settings all mm-hmm. over this relatively small country, but still, it is working as it's supposed to be working. And also we have many uh, we have data from many, many, many more people. So even the world's you know, largest clinical trial, 30,000, 40,000, whatever, not the size of the numbers of people we're looking at here, many more people who are older. Then we're in the clinical trials, many more. And of course, that's the group we're most concerned about, people with comorbidities in
0: this, uh, in this population, and so on. Hey, Ruth, um, President Biden is going to participate in an event just a little later that commemorates the 50 millionth COVID-19 vaccine shot. It, it sounds like a good number, but when we dig deep into that number, mm-hmm. we see that the vaccine distribution has been very far from equitable. Uh, in different cities around the country, yeah. what is the right yeah. way to make sure that distribution is fair?
2: a so super complex question, Kim. I mean, first of all, yes, it's a wonderful milestone to mark. Fifty million doses is great. It is better than we where we have been, and there's nowhere near where we need to go. So, this is again happy making. Not quite as happy making as the news from Israel, but but happy making. The equity question is much more complicated. What we uh, seem to be observing all over the United States is that African-Americans and Hispanics less so Native Americans are getting uh, their uh, immunizations at about half the rate of uh, majority white people. And some of that is access and some of that is uh, understandable distrust of the vaccine itself because so people are not sure they want to take it yet. And uh, basically we need an all hands on deck strategy and many states and locations in the federal government as well have been working on it but basically we have to engage frontally with this justified this justified distress in some of our communities who have been treated so disrespectfully and with violations of human rights over the decades and millennia we need to address that straight on and it's happening we need to reduce barriers to vaccine registration so I'm sure you You've experienced yourself or from family members how hard it is in many parts of the world to actually get a vaccine shot, how complicated it is to navigate some of these registration systems, and that systematically works against people who have less well education, who are not as literally, literally wired and sort of social network-wise wired. Uh, so that's a barrier. Another barrier is where the distribution sites are. We need to have them in uh, communities that serve systematically disadvantaged and uh, disproportionately burdened communities. We need to prioritize vaccine allotment to those communities. There's lots that we can do.
0: This is a, a long list of things. Is, is this I something... know. I've <laughs> got a six-point
2: plan here. Look, there's a reason
0: that you're a professor of biomedical ethics yeah. at Hopkins. Um, is 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 this something that, that cities can do on their own, or does the federal government right. need a hand in this?
2: Yes and yes, right? So I see these localities, and many are taking steps of the sort can move on their own, small locations, big big locations, but absolutely federal investment, federal leadership is key, and part of why we're in the spot that we're in and not further along is, of course, because we we had neither of those things, federal leadership or federal investment, in distribution and deployment. Uh, in the past administration,
1: have you seen signs though that it is improving? That the the vaccines are getting out, the numbers are picking up. Because I think about lot uh, in particular, kids in schools, kids have missed so yeah. much in the past year.
2: Yeah, so that's that's uh, one of my uh, you know biggest heartaches I think mm. uh, for all of us. The fact that we've seen so much uh, setback in the well-being of children in the K through twelve age group in particular. It's just it's just not as it should be. The main thing that each of us needs to do is do whatever we can to get community transmission rates down. So while vaccinations are important uh, for teachers and for parents and eventually for children in terms of making people feel comfortable and confident about being in school or sending your kids to school, if we can't get community transmission rates low enough, we will never be in a situation where we will feel good about where everyone will feel good, no matter what the science says about getting kids back in
0: school. I don't. So, I, I don't like hearing that word, never.
2: I take back never. When I said <laughs> okay. that, I didn't like it when I heard it. We will get community transmission rates down. That will happen as vaccine goes up. But it will also happen uh, and continue to happen if we keep up. You know, this is all the good stuff that I'm sure your listeners are tired of hearing. But if people will mask up, if people will keep physically distanced we can keep community transmission rates from escalating and we can actually get them to go down. We know this. We've done it before. It works. So as we wait for the vaccine um, population uptake to to rise, we continue to wear masks and we continue to stay physically distance and we will get more kids in school, more hours a day, more days a week faster.
0: What should our expectations be about kids and vaccines?
2: Well, it depends on age of kids, right? So we have at least one vaccine that's authorized for use in children from 16 and older. Uh, there are a number of studies that are looking at kids 12 to 18, 12 to 16. We may have, you know, pretty encouraging. We may have data, and it should be pretty encouraging, coming in over, say, um, second quarter to third quarter of 21 of this year. Uh, there may be actually... An evidence base for the FDA to approve vaccine in adolescents before the academic school year starts in the fall. Uh, these are I I want our listeners to understand these are speculations. I mean the fact that the trials are going on is not speculative, but when the data right. will come in that will allow for a judgment like that is speculation. All right. Trials are just beginning with younger kids, and I won't get hazard a guess there.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, but the quicker the better, I think many would argue. Oh yeah. Ruth, thank you so much. Ruth Faden, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman, Johns Hopkins, Berman Institute of Bioethics, Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And of course, that is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, this week's cover story in the magazine, it's an incredible one. Uh, Shoes teenage resellers are ringing profits out of everything from the latest Yeezys to outlet store leftovers. Like, who knew, Tim, this is an asset class?
0: Uh, teenagers knew.
1: <laughs> they did indeed, right? This is why we should just go to our young
0: and, and the folks at StockX, <laughs> we could say, too.
1: Exactly. All right. So let's get more from freelance writer Joshua Hunt, writing about it for Bloomberg Business Week. He's on the phone in Alaska, joining us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber from Brooklyn. Joel, in a year of already crazy trading trends and market stories, sneakers.
4: That's why I thought it was uh, such a perfect time to do this one is, you know, in this age of Bitcoin and meme stocks and all these things that feel intangible. It's like, oh, by the way, there's a hard good that's actually uh, an incredible market and it's become amazingly uh, uh, lucrative for, for a certain, um, uh, you know, web savvy, entrepreneurial spirited kind of person. Uh, and what we've really seen just in the, you know, there's, it's not like sneaker reselling is new. This has been happening for years, but what we've seen just in the past couple of years, and then I think it's really come to, into its own during the pandemic is how online everything really has become and StockX a couple of years ago really created a new e-commerce platform. Um, it also helped create an, even like an index that could track some of the, 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 the most lucrative of shoes and the ultra rare ones. Um, the performance of that is something to behold, but I think what, what Josh really found was even, you know, post-StockX things have changed, and the pandemic uh, has really brought out, you know, like a, a supply and demand element that's feeding the market. So, so Josh, why don't you tell us about um, how you found a character uh, who who's, you know, became basically the narrative for the story?
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of Turning to the young, in this case, finding the right character for the story was all about Instagram and social media, uh, which is kind of where these, you know, teenage resellers uh, live and die. I mean, they—it's—it's it's like their their branding and their how they how they sort of uh, show their clout and show their success and and communicate with um, you know the people that are going to be not just their customers but their 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 colleagues, you know, their allies in arbitrage, as I say in the article. Um, you know, a lot of those initial meetings are happening through Instagram. So, you know, I spent the first uh, half of 2020 in in Tokyo, Japan, and with, uh, the pandemic uh, in a little different way than a lot of America was. And, you know, when Stores started opening back up there in the spring. I spent a lot of time walking through this neighborhood, this neighborhood Harajuku, which has uh, for a long time had all these stores that specialize in selling rare sneakers, which is what what sort of got me um, thinking about this in the first place. And inspired by that, by seeing this sort of real life version of one of these online markets. Uh, In Tokyo, where they've had them for, you know, more than a decade and a half, I dove in Instagram. And I pretty, you know, sometimes you just have a feeling about a subject. And (laughs) right away, I knew based on this kid's Instagram activity that I had something special in this kid, Joe.
4: And and talking about uh, uh, somebody who's uh, West Coast streetwear, the name of the company he's got, um, and his Instagram presence. And you know what you're saying there, Josh, is like it makes so much sense because you've got everyone. You can understand that there could be like a really ultra rare sneaker that. You know, is a Grail is the <laughs> lingo, right? And you can get five figure yeah, prices on that, those kind of things. But what what's so interesting about uh, uh, Joe's story and West Coast Streetwear in the pandemic is basically he realized that the other end of the spectrum, what the bricks, which are basically just inventory sneakers, could also become incredibly lucrative online. So, so how did that part of the story unfold?
5: Yeah, well. Storyline that's getting uh, so much bigger than I initially thought it was, was just uh, once, you know, time and time again, the answer to my questions was just way different than what I thought it was going to be. I mean, I, I really came into the story thinking that, um, you know, the conventional wisdom is that all the money is from. You know, a lot of you know, really smart analysts that i told me, you know, it's all about, about the, scenes you know, where the money is. And, you know, and here I meet this kid, uh, Joe Hebert, uh, who has this West Coast brick building. And, you know, actually, a lot of my – like, that's how I get my name out there. And I make a a, a bit of money on those really rare high shoes. But for me, it's really all about doing a volume business in these bricks, you know, the kind of – the. Shoes that 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 uh, uh, you know consistently sell you know right around retail on StockX. Um, you know they're not the it's not the the, the, the rare shoes or the ultra hype shoes, but they're the they're the shoes that you know everyone buys. I mean you know everyone. It's a high volume business, and by um, by being really savvy about you know when to buy, when to sell. Uh, controlling inventory. And uh, most interestingly, I thought um, doing a kind of volume trade uh, on on the side in uh, discount codes. You know, uh, a lot of these uh, stores and brands offer discount codes that uh, might be tied to a customer's birthday or something like that. And, you know, these could be up to 50% off codes. And guys like Joe, who are smart, they buy these things up, and they apply them instead of You know, a three hundred or five hundred dollar purchase, like an ordinary consumer might, they apply them to like the maximum level purchase that they apply them to, which is sometimes you know tens of thousands of of dollars, or even you know some of these orders run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there are all these interesting ways that these uh, kids like Joe make these bricks, these less loved shoes, these kind of everyday you know, Nike and Adidas sneakers and New Balance sneakers, and you know, they, they make those very profitable.
0: Hey, Joshua, we're having a, a little bit of problem with your phone, so I wanna to go to Joel for, for this. Um, Joel, how exactly did Joe do this?
4: Well, during the pandemic, um, I think the the part of the story that, that Josh does a great job of explaining here is like just on a meta level, just to think about how, no one went to brick-and-mortar retailers anymore, right? And we've seen strategically companies like Adidas and Nike shift to a more direct-to-consumer model. Um, so that's playing into it. And so suddenly you had the footlockers of the world doing like 50% off. And and even they are kind of like a wholesaler. So you had all these other mom-and-pops out there. And and so what uh, the character at West Coast uh, Streetwear that that Josh found did was he basically bought a truck uh, uh, and, you know, like a, a big one that he could throw a bunch of stuff in the back and then proceeded to go on an epic COVID road trip. And it was all about how many pairs of shoes he could load up in the back. And he was basically amassing a massive supply of bricks. And by the time he got back home, he could sort of start opening up the floodgates or or metering them out and basically playing with the supply and demand equation until he had flipped a tidy profit off of this road trip. It was just a totally fun, genius way to spend your pandemic.
1: Well, it's so funny because it's like using bots to figure out, you know, which are the most sought after sneakers. And there's a little sophistication into it. And then ultimately it just comes down to, as you just (laughs) said, Joel, a
2: road trip.
4: Yeah, and and you know of all the things that I could have been doing during the pandemic, like <laughs> going on a, a great American road trip to like corner the sneaker market, I, I definitely feel like there's some FOMO there.
0: So I I, I don't want to give the whole story away um, because it is it is so good. Um, but can you give a little more color about where Joe comes from?
4: Um, it, it, I actually would turn it over to Josh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I think I we think have Josh. Yeah. We're so he, we, let's try Josh first, hear- and if not, I can take it.
1: Come on in, Josh. Can you guys hear
5: me? Okay.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it's better.
5: All right. Yeah. So um, uh, I guess the the hint that I'll that I'll give your readers is the the hint that I um, is that I first give readers early on in the story, uh, which is that um, you know when I asked Joe about why he's so good at, at what it is that he does and uh, what sets him apart from you know all the other Kids out there doing the exact same thing that he's doing. Uh, the only hint that he would give me, time and time again, was that you know it was an advantage to be living in Portland, Oregon, where Nike has its its world headquarters and where Adidas has its U.S. headquarters. And uh, you know people who people who live in Portland or spend any significant amount of time in Portland, Oregon, know that it's a big sneaker town and know that it, it's pretty hard to live there without knowing some people that work at. Or Adidas, and um, yeah, without without giving away the the ending, that's the that's the big hint that that Joe uh, gave me that that eventually led to this revelation about um, you know a relationship that he had. That, uh, <laughs> that, uh, it sounds a little sordid. It's not surprised. everybody.
1: <laughs> it's a really cool uh, twist. Hey, one thing we got to ask before we go: um, how much money does he make in doing this?
5: Oh, boy. I mean, it, it, it's, I'll tell you what, it's very weird to be interviewing 17 and 19-year-olds who could, like, buy and sell you. Uh, I imagine. I mean, it, it's just its just unreal, the amounts of money. I mean, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, Joe was, uh, you know, didn't want to give away a lot in terms of profit, but, I mean, he his revenues are up in, uh, you know, uh, half a million dollars or some, And on top of that, uh, he, you know, he's reinvesting uh, a lot of his, his profits. In fact, I just saw on his Instagram story, he just moved into yet another bigger warehouse. Um, and, uh, but aside from this, he's, you know, selling uh, access, you know, he's selling access to this Discord group to, te- to teach other uh, young teens how to do what he's doing yeah. and he's, you know, earning, he's earning $250 from each of his, you know, several hundreds of t- subscribers. So that's uh, a big, supplemental income right there.
1: We're all now Googling, how do I become a sneaker broker? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, great story, great cover story, uh, and I'm so glad that we were able to get the line nice and clean or cleaner. Uh, freelance writer Joshua Hunt, it is the cover story of Bloomberg Week. joining us on the phone from Alaska, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, uh, that issue online, hitting newsstands, and on the Bloomberg terminal with uh, so many other great stories as well.
6: You're listening
3: to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic, on Bloomberg Radio.
1: So a top story this hour and certainly one of the most read on the Bloomberg this weekend. We're going to hear from one voice that the investment world, and I might add the man on the street, have constantly monitored, listened to, and looked to, especially at moments of stress, crisis, and uncertainty.
0: None other than Warren Buffett. Kat Chaglinski joins us now. She's finance reporter for Bloomberg News and joins us on the phone from New York City. Kat, great to have you on the show. Um, what has Warren Buffett been doing or not doing, or I should say, not saying uh, over the past few months?
6: Well, I think that's going to be the main reason investors really <laughs> tune in on Saturday. I mean, his letters always draw a big crowd. But he was really quiet last year. You know, we heard from, his, from him during his annual meeting in May where he sort of expressed some caution about the situation we were in. And then we didn't hear from him for months. And, you know, we've gotten updates on how Berkshire's doing. But I think in a year that really demanded corporate leaders to kind of speak up about big topics, whether it was the presidential election and all that was going on with that or racial protests. We didn't really hear much from Buffett, and I think that's why investors on Saturday are hoping to sort of hear him give his take about a year that was so crucial to the U.S. Well,
1: Kat, you know, listen, this is, you know, an individual who during the financial crisis, I remember him, was it 60 Minutes? Like, this is somebody that in times of crisis and uncertainty that we kind of look to, why has he been so quiet? And I listen, with a lot of respect, because he's 90 years old.
6: Agreed. And, you know, I mean, he is careful. He's always been strategic and careful about, you know, uh, sharing his thoughts. Um, He has been quiet on like issues such as politics in recent years. And I think I think that has been kind of an interesting um, change. I mean, he, you know, he campaigned for Hillary Clinton. He's Mm -hmm. done stuff in the past with politics. But we didn't really hear much out out of him in this recent election. We just know that he talked on the phone once with Joe Biden. Um, And I think I think there is a little more um, caution, and I think Kathy Seifert and the analyst at CFRA Research really put it well. Like, I mean, obviously the discourse has changed a lot. You know, if you do talk politics at a company, you you know you might be attacked by one side or the other. So if you're mm. trying to walk a middle ground, which I think Buffett does try to carefully do a lot, um, I, you know, it's it's harder to um, to find that middle ground these days.
0: So do we expect to hear anything more about his positions, or, or was that news out in? in- In just the last few weeks, when we did hear about Berkshire Hathaway trimming uh, its position in Apple, for example.
6: So yeah, we did have some of that news of like the trimming in Apple. You know, he revealed the big new Chevron and Verizon stake. I do think we are going to hear a little bit, at least, of his overall stock market strategy, and I think this is sort of key because everyone who follows Berkshire wants to know more about their cash um, deployment. You know, they want to know where buffett's actually putting his money to work and while he was sort of active in the stock market we actually saw him sell a lot of stocks last year like he got out of the airlines he trimmed a lot of his bank holdings which used to be a huge portion of that portfolio and while he did buy new states like the chevron and the verizon ones in particular i think there was some sort of reshaping of the portfolio that if he does touch on i think investors are going to be really interested to hear
1: more is it right 427 billion dollars in cash i'm looking at fa um, on the bloomberg <laughs> is
6: it more than oh that? yeah no don't worry it's 145 billion around that oh, um, okay. which is a uh, way less but still a lot of money to handle I and mean, honestly he's been hitting records almost every quarter in terms of the cash pile so again that becomes a huge question for investors
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's so many topics that they want to know about um, from him specifically. Will he be pushed again,
6: potentially, or will he even address succession? You know, he's been really careful. And I think part of that is, you know, in 2018, he named Greg Abel and Ajit Jain to vice chairman roles. And that really sign you know, signal to investors that they're the two who are most likely to take over. You know, I, unless it's a crazy Saturday for me, you know, and he does actually step down or something. I think we might just get a little more of an update on how he's doing. And I think that's important to investors because we, we sort of understand that Berkshire has a plan in place for succession, even if we might not know exactly what it is. But I think investors want to know that as he turns 90, how is he actually doing? How is he feeling? How is he mentally doing? Um, I will say that we saw Charlie Munger yesterday speak. And at 97, he's still sharp as a tack. So, yeah. He, um, <laughs> and
0: spirited. Yeah. He, he, you know, he wasn't so positive on Robin Hood and Bitcoin. In fact, Robin responding today to those comments. Hey, Kat, um, can you talk a little bit about how Buffett played, not, not played, but even campaigned in the 2016 election or, or talked about politics and, and how it's been a departure in recent years for him to kind of stay silent?
6: Has always taken a careful tact, right? He he says that he doesn't want Berkshire to, you know, sort of take any views, um, but he he was willing to do his own, you know, personal campaigning for these politicians, and you know, I mean, he wasn't ever, you know, a huge um, like a crazy crazy donor, but he was he definitely would put his backing to these politicians, and so for him not to. Over the past four years, we've really – he's been very careful about what he said about um, our former President Trump. And in this recent election cycle, you know, his annual letter before uh, before the last election didn't mention politics at all. And it's just a little – it's a little more quiet, you know. And it's hard to say that – I mean, maybe that's good. You know, Maybe maybe the problem is we have so many people expressing so many opinions. But it's just so – It's such a reserved part of uh, Buffett that you sort of wonder, why is he stepping back?
1: Hey, Kat, just got about 45, 50 seconds here. Um, Just how you end your story about, go back to the dot-com bubble, and uh, Warren Buffett actually talked about the time as if it was some kind of virus, right?
6: Agreed, yeah. He mentioned it was as if a virus sort of gripped investors, and they had these hallucinations where, you know, the companies were really not priced correctly. And I think that's honestly pretty key to today and what we're seeing with GameStop. So we're hoping, you know, depending on when Buffett put pen to paper on this letter, we're hoping that maybe we'll get a little bit of his thoughts on kind of the stock market speculation and where he expects it to go. What time does that letter hit? It should hit 8 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday. All right. You're going to be up early. Catch yeah, we get, know
0: what you're doing this weekend.
6: <laughs> get your coffee
1: and croissant. <laughs> Good reading. And then you can listen to our Bloomberg Business Week <laughs> weekend podcast. I'm just going to tell you, it all comes together. Perfect. Plans for the Saturday
0: already <laughs> taking fold. <laughs>
1: exactly. Katja Glinsky, thank you, thank you. Finance reporter, Bloomberg News. She is our go-to on all things Berkshire and Warren Buffett. Just a great reporter on the phone in New York City.
6: I'm in my car.
4: is The Drive to the Close. That
3: punk to music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, it's time for The Drive to the Close. We're just rounding off our worst levels of the session, but down still 2.2% on the S&P, down 1.6% on the Dow, NASDAQ off 3.3%. Watching the overall equity trade, we've also been watching those meme stops and GameStop in particular. Uh, we saw a double yesterday, take off again today. So let's get into it with Bloomberg News cross-asset reporter Katie Greifeld on the in New York City, also with us in writing about it, Jonah Sarah, Bloomberg opinion columnist, writer, and host of the wildly popular Wondery podcast, The Shrink Next Door, if you haven't listened to it. Tim, you need to listen to it. Uh, being made into a series on Apple wow, TV+. Wow, Carol, blown up my spot here. <laughs> Sorry, how could you not? It's so great. Um, guys, Thank you to ha- uh, have you with us. Joe's with us from Telluride, Colorado. Katie, let me start with you. Um, talk to us about GameStop and the meme stocks. What are we seeing, and is it just like what we saw a few weeks ago?
7: Well, it's back, apparently, GameStop, back from the dead, but I'm going to argue that it feels different than it did in January because what's different now is that you have the short interest on this stock is way lower. Last estimates have it around 30%, whereas in January it was 141%. So a wildly different sort of feel there. It's probably not being driven by short covering to the same extent. And I'll also say what's interesting, just watching the market action today, I mean, GameStop was up over 100% at one point. Now it's up a very tepid 30%. So it's paired that gain. <laughs> it's all relative. Basically, it's, the rest, it's all relative. But basically, as the rest of the market sells off, it feels like some of that is cooling just this crazy free, uh, frenzy in GameStop. Whereas in January, it was the other way around. It was really GameStop in charge and driving the rest of the market.
0: Hey, Joe, come on in here um, because your column that's out today is all about this. Dot com survivors have wisdom for the GameStop crowd. You caught up with investors from 22 years ago to learn how navigating a stock bubble affected them for the rest of their lives. You covered this in the late 1990s yeah. and the early 2000s. Does this feel similar? Does it feel different right now?
6: Well,
3: there are a few different aspects. One is the anger. That certainly wasn't around. The idea that we have to you know, we're we're buying this. We're running up these stocks to, to get to get the man. Um, that certainly was <laughs> yeah, not right. part of the dot com bubble. Uh, but the, the idea that that um, you're you're buying stocks with without even thinking about uh, revenue, profit, uh, 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 book value, PE. You know, that, that's very similar. And um, you, you know, I, I think what the dot com people who experience the dot-com bubble who, who are not professional investors but dive dove into it is when you when you dive into stocks because they're going up uh and they're going up fast it doesn't end well and for most of the people that i interviewed you know it didn't end well hmm. and what? i think when when you when you ask them about about the meme stocks, they say you know here we go again that's their attitude
1: Well, and I do wonder, you know, Katie, you talked about the trade being a little bit different. And I do wonder, we've had hearings in Washington. uh, A lot has happened since. You know, what kind of chatter are you seeing in some of the Reddit rooms? Like how, I'm just curious if if it's been impacted at all.
7: Well, I mean, if you look at Wall Street, that's right now. And I don't recommend spending a lot of time there. But they are definitely triumphant today. They're seeing this as a win. You know, they got the stock back up. And it's interesting that this reached Washington. Obviously, there's a lot of chatter about, you know, whether we're going to get more transparency around short selling, whether short selling is good or bad. That debate has reemerged from all of this, and where you actually could see change is whether or not, you know, the time it takes to settle a trade will change. There's been some talk of it being shortened from two days to one day, and uh, we'll see if we'll get there. But I mean, to the point of comparing this moment in time to the late 90s, I think what's different now is just how much activity we're seeing in the options market. Mm. Because these crazy moves that we're seeing in in the equity markets It's even crazier in the options market. Just the the level of activity we're seeing there. So that's a slightly different nuance than you know what we were seeing in the late nineties.
1: Well, Joe, come in on that. And I have to say, I remember the late nineties. You're right. You got into a cab. People talked about tech stocks. I remember, you know, just before the financial crisis, real estate. I'd go on a yoga retreat, and everybody was talking about buying and selling homes. Like it was just crazy. You know, talk to us a little bit more about like the differences here. Well, um,
3: you know. After the this is one thing that's been on my mind a lot, you know. After the dot com bubble burst, people just lost money. There was no Washington investigation. There was no, uh, you know, there was no aftermath of how do we protect investors better and blah blah blah. People just lost money. That's how you learned. You you lost money. (laughs) Right. And and honestly, I think this. I mean, I'm I'm kind of floored that there have been congressional hearings to do what exactly to protect who from what. And the idea that, that, I mean, short sellers play a really important role in the marketplace. Um, there are there excesses on the short side, just as there are excesses on the long side. But the idea that these guys are going to drive short sellers out of business is, is, A, implausible, and, B, it would be a really bad thing if that happened and you only had longs. Well, did we need to do
1: anything, though, Joe, in your view, in terms of checking out the system in the aftermath? Especially when there were traders who were on these platforms and all of a sudden they couldn't trade anymore or their positions were closed out.
3: Right, but that, that has happened historically yeah. you know, for the same reason, for the exact same reason. It has, it, 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 it's, they have to put up more collateral and therefore I know the brokerage house is in trouble. I mean, the big problem is that Robinhood never really explained to their investors, you know, kind of what the deal was. They're just like, oh, free trades, free trades, free trades. Um, you know, so maybe there should be more disclosure. But uh, aside from that, I mean, the idea that you have to protect the people who are on, on, on the Reddit boards, I think that's insane.
0: Hey Katie, um, sharp moves in AMC in companies of course like GameStop, Naked Brands, Express, is this kind of the new normal for right now? Is this something that we're going to be coming back to every few weeks where we see spikes like this?
7: Well, I really hope not. <laughs> but I think. I mean, it keeps you busy. You want a life,
1: right? <laughs>
7: yeah, it's, it's job security, but yeah, I would like to go outside again one day. <laughs> I mean, that remains to be seen. I think you know the tone at at the end of January when it felt like GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry kind of cooled down was. Okay. That was an interesting moment in time. I'm happy we're past that. But I think the fact that we're seeing these crazy moves, especially in GameStop again, after a lot of those shorts have been squeezed out is really taking a lot of people by surprise. So I don't have a good answer for you. It could be the new normal. I hope it's not, but we will see.
0: So Joe, what was some of the advice that the folks you caught up with from your article 22 years ago have for the GameStop crowd? Well,
3: most of them said what you would expect them to say after they lose money in a frenzy, which is slow but steady. Slow and steady wins the race. That's not what people want to hear right now. The market's too excited. There's too much energy. Um, the thing hasn't collapsed in on itself yet. Um, and, and, but, but, you know, the, the old, the, all, all the old nostrums is kind of where they came back to. It's like you threw it away. You said, I don't need that. You know, that's not how the world works. And then it turns out that is how the world works. And they learned that the hard way by losing money.
1: Did anybody surprise you when you went back?
3: Yeah. <laughs> the guy who lost the most was the one who never lost his taste for risk. Uh, <laughs> I have to say that was pretty funny. He was like 25 years old. He had everything in a free IPO stock. The company who failed by the time he was allowed to sell it. And he said to me, well, that's one lesson. You know, if you're going to be locked up, you ought to own the company. Right. Um, and, and, and then he's now in Bitcoin and uh, he's now in Bitcoin and, and, and cryptocurrencies. Well,
1: speaking of Bitcoin, uh, Katie Greifel, we got to ask you because you moderated a panel, you wrapped up Bloomberg Lives Crypto Summit today. Any key takeaways? Kathy Wood was there. Uh, Tim and I caught up with her uh, earlier this week on uh, Bloomberg. Um, any key takeaways? Well, the Kathy panel, of course, was the, the sort of the
7: highlight of the show and um, we all know Kathy's views on Bitcoin. Uh, she's very bullish, but she did say that she sees trillions in market cap potential for Bitcoin. So that definitely caught up a lot of attention. And in terms of my panel, I was trying to get to the bottom of whether, you know, it feels like the conversation has shifted from Bitcoin as a form of payment to a store of value. So... We spent a lot of time there. Again, in my, in my view, it feels like digital gold is now the new pitch for Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, but it's
1: there are definitely a lot of uh, bullish payment sentiment there, too. Hey, Joe, leaving you with the final thoughts here. Got 30 seconds. Bitcoin, what are you thinking about? And what are you hearing? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I am so the wrong person to ask that question. I mean, I, I, I see Joe Wiesenthal on Twitter on that all day long, all night long. It's like, the last thing I'm ever going to do in my life is get Bitcoin. <laughs> oh but my that, God. But that's
1: just me. So no FOMO from,
0: from, from Joe, <laughs> no Sarah,
1: no FOMO, no <laughs> Tina, no nothing. <laughs> um, Listen, great stuff, guys. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Jonas Sarah, uh, check out his story.com. Survivors have wisdom for the GameStop crowd. It's a great read. Uh, a lot of specifics, and just going back to those people during the uh, stock bubble uh, back in 1999. And Katie Greifeld, one of our go to voices when it comes to the meme stock trade. GameStop, uh, great stuff. Bloomberg News cross asset reporter Katie Greifeld, check her out. Check them both out on Twitter.